This episode of the Post-Christianity Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Future Proof by Stephen McAlpine. Stephen McAlpine is an Australian writer and speaker who specializes in cultural engagement and the church. In his new book, Future Proof, coming February 2024, Stephen encourages readers that we have been given everything we need in Christ to thrive in a post-Christian cultural landscape. Visit thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast to find this book and other resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way. And use code POST at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast. We need to be very aware of not boasting in the things that we are inclined to see as great achievements of our society. Right, yeah, yeah. Which, of course, is often the very first thing people do. Say, here yes. you go, this is why these values work. Look at all this wealth they've created. Yes. And you say, yeah, but that, that wealth itself may end up, for the, for the things that truly matter in eternity, Yes. end up being more of a curse than a blessing. Yes, the West invented the individual, but it also inv- invented individualism yeah. and expressive individualism and this atomization of culture and, oh my goodness, can we learn yeah. from our brothers and sisters around the world. Post-Christianity. I'm Glenn Scrivener. And I'm Andrew Wilson. And uh, this is our second episode, uh, thinking about our historical moment here in the 21st century, but uh, we want to see that in historical context, and the ways in which we have been a Christianized society and now are a post-Christian society, are we? Hence the question mark. In the last episode, we had a look at 1776, and uh, Thomas Jefferson writes, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we have these uh, inviolable rights. And uh, that wasn't originally what he said. Originally he said uh, sacred and inviolable. Sacred and undeniable. Sacred and undeniable. Benjamin Franklin put a line through that and said... and uh, one wonders whether it was just for aesthetic reasons or like he, he just thought it's, it's better for concision to have a single word, self-evident. Yeah, self-evident was a term that a lot of people at the time were beginning to use. And it, it, so it wasn't out of nowhere. I don't think it was just stylistic. I think there was an appeal to a sort of commonality of values that we share. When, yes. I think when you say something is sacred, there's always an implication with the religious freedom hat on that maybe people who didn't share the same convictions about the sacred would disagree with the rights. Yes. And Franklin's obviously trying to outmaneuver that objection, I think, and say, no, these are this is self-evident and we all affirm that it is. Yes. It's a funny phrase, though, because it says we hold these truths to be we, self-evident. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. if it was actually self-evident, you wouldn't need to hold them at all. It would just, everyone knows it and you would probably wouldn't even need to say it. But I, I think it makes sense. I think the entire sentence makes sense as long as you put all the emphasis on we. It's like, yes. mil- billions exactly. wouldn't. Billions <laughs> wouldn't, but we hold these truths to be self-evident and yeah. we're going to have this experiment called America. Yeah. Let's give it a go. Who's, a, who's, who's all aboard on the yeah. American experiment? Yeah. Uh, do you want to you know, live in this castle in the air in which yeah. we treat one another as, as though they have these um, unalienable rights of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And we said at the end of the last episode that helping people see that it's not self-evident but that it has come to us through the contingency of history and theology is really helpful um, for Christians. It's always helpful for us to figure out whether what I believe has come from the Word of God or whether it's just come because I happen to live in the 21st century West. Um, It's also helpful for our non-Christian friends to say, hey, the stuff that you count as self-evident, why don't we just call that a belief? Yeah, (laughs) Because it's this gut intuition that you sort of navigate the world by. And what we're trying to do in this podcast is wake people up to the contingency of things and underneath 
all the historical contingencies, there's Jesus Christ, who is working out his purposes in the world, and he has shaped all of us more than we might have imagined. What I really um, appreciated from your book, Remaking the World, Andrew, is that you press into the contingencies of history mm. in the shaping of the West in a way that, you know, my, my book, The Air We Breathe, um, it's a little bit more like Revelation 21, where the, the, the city just descends from on high. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought you could pay yourself to the Apostle John in that, that early. No, heaven, heaven. I, I am the New Jerusalem. But no, the Christianity is kind of yeah. like this, you know, these platonic ideals of equality, yes. compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom and progress. And in a sense, my book is an ideas book with a bit of history along the way. And I sort of get people on board the train for the history journey by saying, hey, equality, that's quite a cool thing and compassion. And I sort of map that onto historical developments, whether you, whereas you really dive down into 1776 and, and do, do the spade work on that. And so yours is a bit more like Matthew 13, okay? So, <laughs> right? Okay, I want to see where this is going. <laughs> that, you know, the sower goes out and scatters seed and there's, you know, there's some soil like this, some soil like this, some soil like this, and and where is it going to come up? And, yeah. um, and it's a long, slow process with a lot of what you might feel is like utterly random contingency. Yeah. In, in these things. And in particular in your book, you, you point to the history of the West uh, in, in terms of um, three things that are sort of absent from, from my book. And, and you talk about globalization, industrialization, and enrichment hmm. um, as things that have developed and might have developed in totally different ways, yeah. um, depending on all sorts of contingent factors about geography and climate and those sorts of things. Yeah. So why is it important to understand our cultural moment to figure out what is contingent historically? I think it's very clever that you've done this through the metaphor of soils and seeds, okay. because you basically make it sound like you are seeding things and I'm soiling things, which, <laughs> which I'm not very happy about. I only realised as you were introducing it that way, I thought, this definitely makes me the bagger. No, no I, but your, your other chapters are more yeah, seedy. Yeah, there's seeds as well. But, so I, yeah. I, do, I actually think it is a genuinely good metaphor. <laughs> seedy. Your other chapters the, are more seedy. There I'm are sorry. the ideas, and then there's the, sort of, there's the land and the geography. And I, I think... Before getting into any of the detail of that, in not just in the in what I'm saying in the book, but the the history of the West, I do I think it's important to see because I, I'm just reminded of that scene in my big fat Greek wedding where the dad is just continually saying, you know, this famous thing, this is Greek, it it's is Greek. from the Greek, and everything <laughs> seems to be. It's almost like if the yeah. Christians look like they're saying everything you value is simply from us, right? Then as much as you, iPhones, you like your iPhone, yeah, Christian. Christian. It's Christian, exactly. Yeah. And the thing is. A large part of that is true, mm -hmm. in the, as we in, as we'll see, um, and probably touched on the previous episode. But I think we have to also see that there's a whole load of what we might, as if you look at a Christian philosophy of history, you'd say these are providential contingencies. Ultimately, nothing is outside of, right. I don't believe anything's outside of God's control or God's gift, but that there are all sorts of factors in terms of um, where oceans are and where minerals right. are and how fruitful land is and when it rains and all sorts of things like that, which yeah. actually, and what, what inventions take place where, and a lot of accidents yeah. of who meets whom and who finds which continent when which they look like accidents to us. And I think they have actually been very in instrumental in the forming of the modern West as well, and, and of the post-Christian world. Mm. Um, 
and I think it's important to at least give recognition to that, even though most of this series we're going to talk a bit about, talk more about what are the Christian, specifically Christian contributions and how they relate to post-Christianity. Understanding some of those contingencies, I think, is still critical because otherwise you tell a very one-sided, ideas-based version and you really only focus on the seed, not the soil. Yes. So I do like the metaphor as much as I think <laughs> it puts me on a funny side of the line. At one point in um, the globalization chapter, you, you begin with a quote uh, by a Polynesian who found himself on, uh, was it Captain Cook's ship? Yeah. Was he called Mahin? Yeah, Mahine. Yes. Mahine. Okay. Yes. And my Polynesian isn't great, but um, <laughs> it's, a, it's an amazing story that they are sailing around the South Pacific, uh, again in the 1770s, trying to understand the peoples they meet, and they arrive at what we now call Easter Island. And they find that the people are, f- even though they look just like Mahine, who's from, well, again, now French Polynesia or Tahiti, that, that area, they just, they, the people look just like that, but they mm-hmm. are at a very different stage of development. In fact, they've got these very impressive statues, which are still very famous today, um, which... But the but the society now is incapable of building anything like the statues, which are hmm. almost mocking them, but going, this is what your ancestors built, but you are much poorer than that now. And they're trying to make sense of this phenomenon. And it, this Mahine, this Polynesian man, says in his own language, good people, bad land. Hmm. So basically something's wrong with the land here that means hmm. that in the last hundred odd years, they begin to speculate. Maybe it's that there's been some ecological disaster, which has meant that people who used to be able to build these very impressive things now simply don't have the the rainfall or the wood or the soil or whatever it is to be able to advance in that way. And I think it's a lovely little metaphor of what was going on more widely in the 18th century as the West was technologically advancing very quickly, which is that it's not just really about the people and the ideas and the things they said and what they believed or even the God they worshipped. It was a large part of it was to do with just the land. It's like, where are you? How much does it rain? What's under the ground? All those sorts of things. And I think it's quite a, quite a good parable for the relationship between ideas and material things in the development of the post-Christian world. And you have inserted these three chapters in the rest of your book, and, and, and there's lots of um, stuff about the, the culture of Christianity and how it has shaped us and where we've gotten to where we've gotten to but you, you found it very important to focus in on the, these material elements the yeah. geography and climate and, and and those sorts of things why, why is that so important as we do history because I think you've got to understand that, that history is not simply the idea the, the uh, matter of one person coming up with a great new idea and people all believing it and I yeah. think if you if you take that kind of view you can end up with to theologize it, a slightly Gnostic reading of the way history works. You end up going, you know, it's simply all about spirit and idea and it's not about matter and form and substance and things. And what can happen is uh, arrogance is one thing. You can say, right. basically, we had better ideas than everyone else. That's right. why right. we, you know, and we have, at its worst, you end up with a very racist vision of the world, which is, well, of course, we've developed the ideas we have, and that's because we're just better thinkers than other people, and we can now impose those ideas on other nations, as, of course, people to this day in the West often still do. And we can say, you must believe these ideas we have because they've led to all of this wealth. And you just read, you overread your contribution to world history and underread the fact that no, a, a bunch of this is because you've got navigable rivers and they don't, or yes. you have coal under your land and they they don't, yes. or yes. you're that near the sea, or yeah. you get this amount of sunshine. You've got a north-south orientation rather than east-west orientation exactly. to your continent. You, you, and, yeah. You've got your yeah. local mammal is a sheep. Their right. local ma- mammal is, in your case, a kangaroo yeah. or a wombat or yes. a llama or try domesticate a, that yeah, a yeah. rhinoceros, yeah. and you think, well, of course you're not going to be able to make, make, get farms <laughs> built, out of, and that it is. I it haven't is milked a rhinoceros. 
rhinoceros or a, no. or a kangaroo. No, <laughs> no, even even a zebra you know, versus yeah. a horse. You go. Yeah. You try yeah. riding a zebra into battle. You try getting yeah. a zebra to pull your plow. It's not going to go well for you. Um, and so I think at lots and lots of levels, we it, it can take the legs out from the arrogance of yes. Western thought, often, which is effectively we've got great ideas and maybe a bit of Christianity mixed in with Greco-Roman tradition, and you have, bang, yes. this sort of wonderfully advanced civilization. It's like, no, a right. big part of this has right. nothing to do with the ideas. It, yes. has, it, it does, and we're going to talk about that as well. But yes. it has a lot to do with, yeah, minerals and weather and yes. maps. Yes. So it could, one danger is it could all go towards spirit, and you just think it's all about great ideas that great people have, and that's the Gnostic kind of danger. There is the, the sort of just the Marxist danger as well of just going, it's all material yeah. explanations, isn't it? And t tell me what that danger looks like. So I think if you, you you can also tell things almost as if there is a sense of inevitability, as if human right. agency doesn't really do anything. And I think to to over to overplay that is to fail to see that there are parts of the world that are extremely geographically similar for, to one another, mm -hmm. even almost geographically identical to one another, that have nevertheless developed in very different ways because the ideas, the institutions, the concepts, the theologies in those places are are very different from one another. And there are some ideas that lead people, that go very deep in human beings, that cause us to change our motives and our ambitions and our desires in ways that we mustn't be underestimated. So it's not simply a product of material causes because there are all sorts of ways in which, again, Christianity changes the way people think about what the future is and about the world is going to be better than it is, changes your view of the way of who God is and the fact that God is a consistent lawgiver who has structured the world to be understood, right. changes your view of what human beings are and how liable we are to be mistaken and therefore changes our attitude towards innovation and what you might now call peer review, critiquing one another's ideas, yeah. changes your attitudes to exploration and discovery and ignorance because it makes you realize how much you don't know and therefore yeah. maybe we might go and find out change your attitude towards the past so you don't venerate ancestors alone but also realize that there are important ways in which they are flawed so if your account of your ancestors looks like genesis you're going to conclude okay so human beings they, our, our fathers have bequeathed to us these good things but my goodness what a tangled mess they were as well it's like a soap right. opera yes but if you don't have that if you just have a hagiographic account of your ancestors you will over-venerate their wisdom and under-recognize the contribution that every generation is called to make to discover things that might be improved upon. Yes. And you put all of that together and shake it around, yeah. and you will end up with a, a group of people, as you know, the modern West has, at its best, has been, that are convinced that there is more to be discovered, more to be found, and a value in testing and experimenting and pursuing novelty, not just preserving fidelity. Right. And then you put that in a mixture with the geographical factors I've talked about, and you end up with something like the yeah. enrichment industrial revolution that we have right. you know, benefited from and are still podcasting using the fruits of right now. Yes, because otherwise you feel like history is just the onward march of ine inevitable ideas yeah. or great men. Yes. You know, great and, and maybe. Well, not inevitable ideas. In some ways, you see it as the onward march of ideas, and a new idea can, like a meme, can just instantly sweep all before it. And right. the reality is, I don't think that is the case. I think that most of the ideas we're talking about are only. Uh, only able to catch get any traction because they are accompanied by inventions or m matter. You know the idea yes. and matter. You know, the, the effectively, yes. it's like it's word and flesh, right? It, yes. it's, it's sort of coming together of both of those things. And I think we are at risk of almost having a slightly gnostic reading of history if you're not careful, where the only thing that matters is the 
You know, it is the spirit that gives life, not the, and the, fle- the flesh has right. no value at all. Right. Which, of course, in Paul's terms is true. But when you l- read history that way, you end up saying, actually, an idea, we, we can almost over imagine how important, you know, the discourse about a particular bill or law or tweet or whatever it might be is, and thinking this has got the power to change everything. Yeah. And that can create quite a lot of anxiety because individuals think, actually, my rightly thinking or speak, saying the exact right word here has the power to change everything. So it's not just a problem with our reading of the his, of the past, right. but actually our understanding of our own place in the world, we basically get messiah complexes yes. um, for the significant, and people, particularly people like you and me who speak and write for a living, yeah. and many people listening to this probably very interested in ideas, that's why you're here, mm. but the risk is that you can exaggerate too much the importance of those things without seeing yes. the sort of wider social, familial, industrial, geographical even yes. factors that lead it to have succeeded or panned out the way it did. Yes, yes. You you are not all that. You know, you you are you are not the driver of history. Um and I think we're already used to thinking that when it comes to the first century. You know, I, I think a lot of people are used yeah. to thinking, well, why did Christ come at the year dot? Well, the Pax Romana was a great help for yeah. the gospel to spread from the, and the lingua franca of Greek was really helpful to have this and and there there were all sorts of confluences of historical contingencies that now that you look back on it, you yeah. say, "Well, obviously, yeah. it sort of it sort of had to be there." And 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 so we we have this sense of God sort of superintending. Yes. The Book of Acts, a hundred years earlier, be like, "Well," and then they got on a ship, and then they got mugged by pirates. The end. You know, <laughs> the it's end. just like the whole thing was. Yeah. Right. So you're right. right. We are used to reading a lot of historic, and similarly the Reformation. You know, mm-hmm. printing. Yep. Luther. So you you we make those connections, but in our own day, we can underestimate them. Yeah. Uh, at least insofar as it was creating the things that make the post-Christian West distinctive. Yes. Um, yes. And so, yes, as, you're, as you say, a number of things I do in the book to try and re- bring those back into the discussion so that you can see how the ideas and the material developments interact with each other. Precisely because in our day, there are lots of people wanting to st- stand up for the West and yeah. standing up for Western values that make me quite uneasy. Yes. Um, and saying things like West is best and trying to... and. And, and not giving particularly spiritual answers mm. to, to why the West has had the, the dominance that yeah. it's had. And if you don't have a, a doctrine of the spirit, all you're left with is the flesh. So at, at what point does that become kind of white supremacy? At, yeah. at what point does that, does that become a, a, a real colonial kind of problem? Yeah. And you push back against that hard by, yeah. by talking about just, just what, what are some of the sort of utterly contingent aspects of Western Europe? That, yeah. That yeah, yeah so I think different? one of the things I had in mind was I, I think it was Dinesh D'Souza. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name, where he had this, he's obviously become a bit of an online polemicist for a particular way of, uh, of seeing the West and a story Launch defender, like you said, you know, he doesn't. I'm not sure if he ever says West is best, but that's the vibe you get from the book. And uh, and he's saying, oh, you know, so when did you last read a great Zulu novel or words to that effect? And I was like, yeah. man, this is as as if there is something in the. Now he wouldn't he wouldn't say it's a racial essentialist project. He's got mm-hmm. at all, but what he is saying is the ideals and ideas contained within Christianity, when mingled with Greco-Roman society, produce this unique thing which mm-hmm. has actually been uniquely fruitful at an ideological level, and therefore you can actually have a sort of sense sense of cultural supremacy um and i hope i'm not being unduly unfair on the way he presents the argument but it, i just i just recoiled from it because i think it is to completely underestimate the fact that the the a major part of the reason why the island we're sitting on right now and you know great britain is has had the outsized impact it has is because of all sorts of 
is things that are essentially to do with even with geography. So forget yeah. forget inventions and forget developments oh, yeah. even of ideas and the church and all that. And just say, well, it's partly because of where it is. Well, you, the Gulf Stream, the right? Gulf weather Stream. System, exactly. And, you know, if we yeah. had the weather that you had on the opposite side of the Atlantic, we would be right. 15 degrees colder. You wouldn't be able to grow anything. So all sorts of things like that. Which, But at, but at a global level, the idea that you are in Eurasia, that mm. Eurasia, if you look at the sort of the, the major land masses, and you say, well, you've got Afro-Eurasia is one uninterrupted block of land and obviously the vast majority of the world's people live there and then you've got the americas which existed in almost isolation mm -hmm. from afro-eurasia uh, for until 600 years ago 500 years ago and then you've got australia which mm -hmm. again similarly existed in splendid isolation for yeah. in a, for even longer and so you end up with the, the the idea that most of the people live in one place you know that what when people eventually develop things like farming and then eventually cities and the like and writing and all the things that come with it which enable us to you know you developmentally uh, to to do all the things we're able to do now including podcasting about stuff that those things are as a result of being in the right set of continents and also to being in the part of the continent that has been settled by those people who developed farming early mm -hmm. which was primarily in west asia and eastern china um and so basically if you were going to get quote civilization emerging anywhere and all you had was a map a relief map and a yeah. bit of common sense you would say well that's probably going to emerge either in the fertile crescent in west asia where the land of the bible and babylon assyria and so on or in in between the yangtze and yellow rivers in china or both and mm. it was it was both and then of course you get pockets of it elsewhere but those two societies develop much quicker and have population explosions much quicker and then of course you find other pockets in you know obviously in india and in parts of africa and in the, both North and South America. But those two population cores mm. are predominant, which is why there are so many uh, essentially Semitic-descended mm. and ancient Near Eastern-descended peoples and so many Ch Chinese-descended peoples in the world today. They, just, they got a huge head start for geographical reasons. Right. And if you don't see that and you don't realize that that's actually a big part of why... I'd, so I'm not just going back to, hey, the British Empire had machinery and that I'm saying no no look back 10,000 years yeah. and you'll see that a lot of the reason why we have some of the developments with, that were enabling us to have this conversation goes back a very very long time to things that really didn't have anything to do with the ideas people were talking about right. in some ways that's the reason why the ideas that people in those communities came to believe or receive were ever heard about by anyone else yes. is because of some geographical and then eventually technological advantages they had not because of the ideas themselves. Right. Where do ideas come in, though? Because, like, I, I completely get, you know, Australians are, are justly proud of the great southern land, and we call it the lucky country. But actually, the soil is terrible, yeah. and there aren't, there aren't great rivers, and it's mainly desert. Yeah. Um, and your uh, animals are a problem too, right? right. How are you yeah. going to domesticate the, animals? You, you like, can't domesticate you, them. So we're going to farm kangaroos and all yes. that. I mean, what are you going to do? And so, I mean, uh, North America had a bit of a head start on Australia in terms of settlement. And yet North America, you know, 330 million, is it? You know, Australia, 25 million, yeah. you know. And like the, the, the land makes a big difference in, yeah. in, lot, in lots of ways. But then you could compare North America to South America, yeah. as someone like Niall Ferguson does. Yes. And he says, well, that, that is an interesting experiment in running a kind of a Protestant North versus, yeah. versus a Catholic South. Yeah. And it's not that the South 
um, has has worse geography or you know, land or riches resources. You know, you can you can dig silver out of the you yeah. know mines in Argentina and all all the rest of it. Um, and so, at some point, would you say I- yeah. ideas do come in? Oh, they absolutely do. Um, so ideas come in, at, you know, throughout the process. It's, it's never like well, we have it's now matter, 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 and then suddenly yep. idea, idea, idea. It's not like that at all, of course. Yep. Although, actually, even in the example Ferguson gives, uh, and he he does a lot of work on it in in his books, but. I think even then, the idea that there is as a lot of development econom- economists talk about the resource curse or words to that effect, that, okay. that actually sometimes having a land in which it's too easy to get wealth out of the ground okay. doesn't incentivize the huh. sorts of institutions right. yeah. and developments. that. So in North America, people are having to hunker down for winter after winter and, and farm and just scrape by. And actually, of course, in the, and you, you could never set up an encomienda system that they did in mm. South America, in North America, because it's just not bountiful enough. Whereas in the mm. South, mm. And, and of course, and the other classic example is um, is the, the resources of Africa, that actually the parts of Africa that are, have struggled in poverty for a long time, in large part because the, the, the ground is so abundant. And even to this day, the sort of minerals you can take out of parts of the DRC or whatever are so valuable mm. that actually people do, they come in and they raid. And that actually right. there's almost even then a disadvantage to, having too much abundance in the land Um, but that by the by obviously there's always an interaction between the two and yeah you can see two societies with roughly similar geographies uh, which develop in very different ways because of the idea so I'd I'd be the I'd be the last person to deny that that happens. Yeah. But I think generally Western people are more inclined to see the ideas as mattering more than the, yes. the geographical yes. or the territorial or the mineral or technological factors underneath it. And so I think I wanted to talk about the way that both interplay with each other. And actually when a great breakthrough, so again, in the year I've given a lot of time to, 1776, you have Adam Smith writing this great economics textbook about how people get rich. But in the end, Adam Smith has no idea that the West is about to explode in wealth. And in fact, he's trying to explain why wealth is not growing as it ought to be, because he thinks people aren't doing the right thing. So his ideas are speaking at the sort of, we still study in universities today, very important ideas. But actually what ends up giving the massive breakthrough in wealth is ultimately things to do with minerals and technology, which end up causing wealth to explode mm-hmm. in Northern Europe and, and very quickly elsewhere as well. So I think even in those great examples, we have a brilliant economist speaking at the cusp of modernity. <laughs> he doesn't actually have any idea what's going, what's about to happen in his own generation. And that will come about because of yeah. stuff rather yeah. than, you yeah. know, it's maps, not chaps is the phrase people often use. And I, yes. I think uh, rightly so. Yes. In the Eurasian continent, though, supercontinent, we've we've got very fertile areas of China and very fertile areas in what is now Europe. Um, but you do make a comparison at, at one stage between um, the sorts of journeys, the, the sorts of yeah, the sorts of journeys that people embark on from China in yes in exploring the world. But do they explore the world mm. as, as opposed to um, the ships that are going from yes. Britain named things like the Endeavour and Explorer and yeah. all, all those sorts of things? So there, there are sort of theological differences that are going on. There are, yes. And so I think ideas, that, that's why, why I think ideas, you have to factor in the role of worldviews and ambition and purpose into these, the teleology, not just matter. And I think the ships one is a really interesting one because people, there's a, um, 
I still find it in Waterstones or, you know, regular bookshops, this book about what, what would have happened if the Chinese and maybe the Chinese actually did discover America in 1490-something, you know, these sorts of books which are giving these thought experiments. But actually the Chinese were way ahead of the West in the 15th century and had these enormous... I mean, the one of the, the statistics, I like it, they had these massive ships. So they said that, that although they're sailing at roughly the same time as Christopher Columbus, in fact, you know, 80-odd years before, that that Columbus's ship is the same size as one of the ships, the Chinese ship's rudder. So it's like, it's just vastly <laughs> yeah, disproportionate. Yeah. And you think, yeah. wow, they were way ahead technologically. But there, there is an, the idea factor is in there as well. And so what happens is the, the Chinese uh, treasure ships, and there's a lot of writing about this and still disagreement about exactly what the agenda was, but there was a lot of collecting tribute. There was, there was some settling. There was some taking back curiosities. Um, but, the, but the motive wasn't, we're now going to go and discover how big the world is or we're now going to go and try and find mm-hmm. new lands and new peoples and we're not whereas when Captain Cook eventually sailing in the 18th century and again in 1776 the, the motives for his trips are things like we want to find out if the Northwest Passage can actually be reached from this side of the ocean or we want to mm. find out what's what's the transit of Venus and so we're studying right. it and we yes. sent a mission out there in the, eight years ago and it went wrong and yes. if we don't get it this year then Venus won't do it again for another N years so we better go out now and take all our measurement equipment yes. oh, and while we're there let's pop in on the on Tahiti and, and, yep. and New yep. Zealand oh gosh goodness yep. I didn't know the Maori and take tens of thousands of botanical and specimens massive and, right. experiments. Mm-hmm. so Botany Bay where yep. I imagine not a million miles away from your yep. where you come from and all these they're all these sort of you know Joseph Banks and Daniel yep. Solander and these other scientists going out saying we want to discover and they did they named their ships things like resolution and adventure and mm-hmm. endeavor and discovery mm-hmm. because they're trying to find out about the world now i don't want to be naive and say oh that's the only thing they were doing because obviously sure. there's some flag planting and some resource extraction as well but but i think quite genuinely you can see a, a motive in many of these people that is trying to find out more about the world at an intellectual level meanwhile when they eventually head to the Chinese court and try and, you know, establish trade in the early 1790s. Um, the, the Chinese emperor famously says, I've still heard in the last few years, I've heard Chinese diplomats quote it on the radio because it's still quite a notorious thing. He said, the Chinese emperor said, well, strange and costly exotic op- objects don't interest me. We've got everything we need here. Right. And actually the contrast was pretty strong that the ideas that led Western people to go all over the world to pick stuff up were grounded in a sense that was ultimately a theological one, that there were things that you could discover and improve about the world and learn more and retrieve and connect the world more together and perhaps eventually share the gospel with people and so on. That's that's half the story. There's a terrible history that we would, I expect, know well as well. But I do think it's fair to say that some of, a large part of why Western people went where they went was not just because they had greater resources, often they didn't, but because mm. there were ideas motivating those trips as well. And in those senses, the, the, there are ideas about progress and, the, and the, the arrow of time, the direction of history yeah. that's, that we can explore and improve. Yeah. Um, which is sort of one sort of perhaps theological difference. Tom Holland spends, spends a lot of time uh, when he talks about science and the emergence of science, um, pressing into how far advanced the Chinese were yeah. when it came to astronomy. And their instruments were so much better and there were all sorts of people from the West you know, going out and, and learning from the Chinese about that. Yeah. But in the end, the scientific breakthroughs that certainly we consider to be, to be what the scientific revolution yeah. sort of began with... Um, had some theological underpinnings yes. to them. Things like 
uh, a single god yeah. um, who can be trusted, you know, at, at all times and in all places, you know, in, in the cosmos, a, a contingent universe that might be otherwise, yeah. and therefore you better go out and, and test it. Yeah. Um, things like the a doctrine of humanity that says people are fallen and that actually their their minds are kind of the seat of their rebellion and we are self-justifying fools that need things that end up being becoming peer review and 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 yeah. you know trying to disconfirm your hypothesis and, and things like that and I, th- I think there there might be another example where incredibly clever people with incredibly sophisticated technology technology that in some senses was outstripping the west yeah hit a kind of a filter yeah. in which Christian assumptions and presuppositions went through the filter and others didn't. Yes, and I think if you would even the way Chinese education at the time and uh, might to yeah. some degree probably still true um but certainly at the time there was a a, ref, a reflect a reflecting backwards on you know the the annals and the great works of Confucius and other sort of founding fathers which of course in in Europe you have that too people looking back to scripture but you begin to it's extraordinary you get these guys beginning to write books like everything Aristotle ever said was wrong and right. why Aristotle's the stupidest of all philosophers. Is right. like, is, was that Galileo called him that? I mean, these are remarkable yeah. statements. Yeah. And the equivalent of Aristotle in the East would be Confucius, but people weren't saying those things. No. Um, and, and as I say, to some degree still don't, because the way in which, it, what's normal in most societies is that you look back to tried and tested ancestral wisdom. Yeah. What's unusual about the the Christian West, effectively, is people began to say there is lots of stuff we don't know and there's lots of limitations to our knowledge and there's plenty of huge blind spots and wow we've just that continent we didn't even know was there and now look at all these people and look at all this land and it's that sense of ignorance that ends up power and some some and an eschatology that in the end god is going to make the world better than it is now yes that powers a sense that you know, yes, society can go forwards. It's yeah. not simply, as the, many Greeks believed, you know, well, you had the Golden Age, then the Silver Age, then the Bronze Age, and we're now here in the Iron right. Age or whatever. Right. You think, no, 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 this is a, that's a sort of downward trajectory, or right. perhaps the Stoics, a cyclical right. journey where you just go round and round and, you know, cycle, death, rebirth, which if you l- just looked at nature is probably what you would conclude. Yes. You know, summer, summer down to winter and then back to summer again, you know. Right. Whereas in Christianity, you get, no, 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 the world can get better. We can advance, yes. we can learn more. Yes. Um, and knowledge that we have held treasure for a thousand years might well turn out to be total bunk, and yes. so we need to be prepared to test it. And so those assumptions percolating through a society for long enough do affect. So, I, so I do think the the ideological part is very important. The material part is very important, and it's the yeah. interplay between the two that yes. creates the conditions for what we now call modernity. And that really feeds into the enrichment story, which yeah. you know you mentioned Adam Smith writing in 1776 on the wealth of nations. Um, he is describing sort of what has come to be known as capitalism um but he was not he did not recognize that he was living through yeah. the a, a time when the resources of a culture would far outstrip you know the the well he's writing the, the book he republishes the book the day after James Watt's steam engine starts work in huh. Bloomfield Colliery. Like the next is to significant date, seventeen seventy six. Yeah, it is. Well, you yeah. should write yeah. a book about it. <laughs> the eighth and ninth of March. It is remarkable because again, he just doesn't realise. Yes, these these enormous technical technological changes that are happening at the same time. Yeah, he doesn't see their significance at least. And and that's when the hockey stick graphs yeah. begin. And if you read someone like a Stephen Pinker, um, yeah. he he will publish dozens and dozens and dozens of such charts that that talk about you know. The world's getting better. The world's getting better. Um, and 
help us to see the ways in which the contingency of you know a rich supply of coal quite close to the surface in northern england yeah maps onto um that sort of the curiosity and the sense of novelty and the sense of progress and, and the theological beliefs that people have how how are they interplaying in the, in this moment so i think you particularly would look at it through i i well i did and i think you can look at it through the lens of the industrial revolution what we what we now got so you 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 would say okay across if you look at deep history people have basically lived on you know somewhere around 400 to 500 dollars a year in modern terms for almost all of human history um what happens is you think that's crazy people are always inventing things and they, and therefore getting more wealth which they are it's just that they're using that wealth to ensure that more of their children survive mm-hmm. and so the gdp per head goes down so you a new discovery is made people get a bit richer but it means they more of their children survive so they then get go back to being a bit poorer and that cycle occasionally you get a cataclysm like bubonic plague or a massive hurricane or stuff, and a lot of people die and then the standard of living quickly goes up but then they have more children and it goes down and that was called the Malthusian trap and existed for pretty much all of history I think I was astonished to discover that the standard of living per person in Shakespeare's day was almost exactly what it was in King David's day right yeah um, per person and yeah. globally now obviously yeah. there are rich people and poor people but but yeah. it, because that's just what we do we end up saying I'm going to invest this and in giving my ch- kids a better chance and so we have more of them what is unusual is that in the late 18th century that ceiling gets punched through mm for the first time and it's obviously does look like a hockey stick just flat you know GDP per head is largely flat for all human history until 250 years ago and suddenly turns a corner and explodes up Mm. and obviously is still screaming upwards at a global level and there are all kinds of reasons for that which obviously I talk a lot about in in the book but I think the the in a fascinating window into it is through British the British Industrial Revolution where you have a lot of material requirements that you you know you have a lot of coal minerals you've got plenty of water it's quite a small island things are connected together relatively well it's easier to link the whole nation together than it is in mm-hmm. plenty of other countries or whatever it's there's a relatively predictable seasonal pattern which means that the rains come at roughly the same time so it's not like an El Nino thing or a monsoon but you've actually got a fairly steady uh, you've also got many centuries of wealth through the wool trade and 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 it's linked it's near enough to a landmass to be able to trade and mm-hmm. all sorts of things like that which vary but you also have very strong sort of Christian roots to even the explosion of wealth we had through the influence particularly in Protestants and dissenters, non-conformists. So this is um, obviously an Anglican speaking to a non-conformist, but mm-hmm. the non-conformists contributed a disproportionate amount, it would seem, uh, in this period to science and technology, mm. partly because they were excluded from other things they might be able to do right. in society. Couldn't go to university, for instance. Couldn't no, go and, and, w- and couldn't take clerical office. There'd be all sorts mm. of yep. things that they couldn't do in the nobility and in the yep. senior hierarchy of the nation. So they formed businesses, and, and a lot of them were d- dissenters, mm. and mm. some of them her- heretically so as well, mm. but ended up investing a lot of time and energy into discovery and building businesses but you also had through partly the influence of protestantism a very strong sense of connection between people who make things and people who think things mm. so this this lovely line from dr johnson samuel johnson who says you know we are a you know we are a city of philosophers and we make the boobies of birmingham work for us um, with their hands <laughs> basically we do we, we are which meant as in these dolts who who just do all the work but we are thinkers but what happens in britain is you increasingly through the influence of Protestant thinkers and you know, people like Francis Bacon and others, we need to bring together the people who make things and the people who think things and use science and experimentation in a feedback loop in on mm. themselves. Mm. 
Protestantism also makes people more literate because they believe the word of God has given them in a book. And if you end up with a highly literate society in which people exchange and argue about sectarian ideas a lot because of, again, partly the influence of Protestantism, if you have a low level of religious, relatively low level of religious persecution because the the state is... um, not able to suppress all the ideas at once, and there's been lots of back and forth about what state religion will be. And you put that in a context where you've got lots of individuals who are making, experimenting, testing ideas and arguing about them. You have the intellectual conditions as well as the material ones for something like the Industrial Revolution to happen, um, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. of course, it, it does. And that's not only in Britain. It, you know, there's Much of it happens elsewhere. But you would look from the history of the world and say, wow, something happened in late 18th century Britain that didn't happen elsewhere Mm. until that point. Mm. And it seems to have quite a lot to do with Christian ideas mingled in with a whole load of material factors that other nations didn't have. And things like work and wealth. Um, So, you know, in classical thoughts, you know, the last, you know, one one of the things out of Pandora's box was work, right? Right, this cursed thing. And so, like, a a view of the dignity of work, that the boobies of Birmingham um, actually have... They're doing good things. ...are doing good things and and good... And and wealth as well, in terms of, like, a classical thing to do with wealth, if you ever got any excess, which was very rarely, you would either hoard it or display it. Yeah. And what happens in a culture where you're continually told stories of, if you have any talents... Yeah. Don't put them in the ground. Like yeah. invest, invest, invest. There is a kind of a. Well, this is what Weber said. Of course. Yeah. And, he's, yeah. and everybody who studies sort of sociology or even like economics of the West has to has to read him. And and there's plenty that you would correct about what he said. But I think yep. the central insight that there is a that different value systems have different levels of weight placed on the value of manual work and of experimental thinking and of you know pioneering novelty. Yep. And if you have people who really think novelty is generally a good thing, at least to try, Mm. coupled with people who are prepared to say working very hard and reinvesting your money is a good thing, you do have the intellectual ideological conditions match with. But of course, that had that happened somewhere completely different, there still wouldn't. If you didn't have coal, you You didn't didn't have have, the coal, iron, you wouldn't have been able to do it either. But but the double whammy seems to be what made. I was going to say Britain special. That sounds. (laughs) I definitely (laughs) don't want to go there. Makes Britain great. But I I do think it's worth. You know, obviously, you've got to be careful how you tell story that it's not triumphalist but i think at the level of his studying historical causes yeah. seeing those two things working in concert in the case of britain yeah. Yeah. is really so rather than saying this is just because there's something innately better about anybody who lives in the west or there's anything better even about the ideas they had yes. but the the collision of the the those ideas particularly the christian yes. originated and novelty favoring ones coupled together with sort of the material conditions they had were extremely important in generating what we now think of as the modern world. Yes. And so so beliefs to some degree affect the enrichment of the West, which has had an incredible impact on how we consider ourselves and life and, and meaning and purpose. Um, but riches also have an incredible impact on our beliefs do. as well. So how should, how should we think about as incredibly enriched Westerners... Yeah. Um, in the church, it's it's also a curse, isn't it? it? Is. To, to have mammon so front and yeah, center, how hard so is it easily for the rich available man to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah. So, what what impacts has that had on what we take for granted? What we th- think of as self evident. Yes. Um, is yes, there's a Christian heritage, but it's but it's also the fact that we've got a supercomputer in our p- pockets yeah. that delivers to us, you know, all the music in the world for free. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. Like, um, how, yeah, how, how are we meant to reflect on that contingency? So 
Well, how to reflect on the contingency, I think, is a, that's a huge question. I'm not even... I think you, at the very least you can say this has both been good and bad. Yeah. Um, but I think in what ways it's good and bad is, is, is a long discussion. But I, I think this is one of the examples that wealth is one of the examples of how, I think in the previous episode you quoted Peter Berger, Christianity's mm-hmm. been its own gravedigger. Mm-hmm. And that might be true just at an ideas level, but it's also true at a financial, economic level. Because right. what Christianity has done, it would seem in in Northwest Europe initially and then spreading very quickly to all over the world is to generate conditions of prosperity that in the end make it harder to hold to Christian faith. And I imagine you're asking about the second half of that. How do those conditions, we've talked about the first bit, how do those conditions make it harder to be Christian? One of the things they do is they make people have much smaller families, which is interestingly a... um, you, know, you got two children, I've got three children. If we lived 500 years ago, we would have had more and, mm. and would have lost more. Um, and, and actually, we're not small families. There's many people who would, who would have f- fewer kids than that. And that at a social level, there are all sorts of fascinating connections between how many children people have and how religious they are, mm. which map not just through history, but all, all across the world today, which is one of the reasons Christianity is you know, booming in sub-Saharan Africa and is stagnating in the in the yeah. West, and even in countries that are not ideologically very Western, like somewhere like Japan or South Korea. Mm-hmm. So, there that's one of the things that was so when people get richer, they it seems for whatever reason the causality is not always obvious. They have fewer kids. They invest more resources in fewer children. Um, I think there is also a deeper theological thing that you can go way back to to Jesus in the with the rich young ruler it's it's obvious um comment but how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God it does seem Mm -hmm. that people's willingness to trust in something other than God obviously goes up when they have more money because they've got more things they could trust in whereas someone with very little says I've got to throw all my hope on God yeah and you find that coming through in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy uh, 5 and 6 you find it in Proverbs even, Lord, I don't want prov- I don't want too much money or too little money because if I'm too little money, yeah. I might go here. But if I've got too much, I will forget you. I'll trust in myself. And so there's quite a basic idolatry of mammon that the Western world has supercharged. It's always been there. Yeah. But obviously by lifting up the God of mammon, the God of money or possessions, uh, it makes it makes Christianity gradually seem less plausible in mm. a society, even though that wealth is itself, as we've been saying, in part, significant part, a product of Christian influence. Yes. So it's it's one of those, and there's various iterations of this that we may even touch on in other episodes, but Christianity has produced conditions that have then ended up making Christianity harder. Right. Um, it's been hoisted by its own petard, or we have been hoisted by yeah. our own petard in yeah. a way. Yeah. And I think that is how your bigger question, I don't know the answer to. How should we think providentially about God's purposes in allowing that to happen? Mm-hmm. Except in, I mean, you might have some interesting comments. The, the, the only thing that occurs to me is simply to say we need to be very aware of not boasting in the things that we are inclined to see as great achievements of our society. Right, yeah, yeah. Which, of course, is often the very first thing people do. Saying, here yes. you go, this is why these values work. Look at all this wealth they've created. Yes. And you say, yeah, but that, that wealth itself may end up, for the, for the things that truly matter in eternity, yes. end up being more of a curse than a blessing, even right. as they are doing many very good things, like right. making people live in less pain and right. in- increasing right. people's likelihood of being able to feed their families and so yeah, on. Yeah. There is a, a dark side to it. Yes. Don't get carried away with yourselves and believe your right. own PR. Yeah. What do you have that you were not given? Yeah. In that one Corinthians yeah, four sort of sense, and, and and also maybe maybe it sort of brings us full circle to um, this acknowledgement that West is not best, 
And our brothers and sisters around the world who love Jesus and have a lot less mammon have so much to teach us. Yes. Um, they have so much to teach us in terms of, you know, we have gotten distorted in terms of, you know, yes, the West invented the individual, but it also inv invented individualism yeah. and expressive individualism and this atomization of culture. And, oh, my goodness, can we learn yeah. from our brothers and sisters around the world? And can we learn from our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have mammon to rely on and yet trust in Jesus in, in yeah. ways that are um, so good for our for our souls. And so I, I think that really helps us to, you know, who knows, in all the providential things that God is doing with the bless stroke curse yes. <laughs> that, yes. that money is, um, it, it should make us look beyond ourselves um, yes. to those, you know, who realize, you know, it's only when Jesus is all I have that I realize that Jesus is all, all I need. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's the lesson for us all, I think. It is. That'll do for this episode, won't it? Um, <laughs> it's kind of a profound and sobering conclusion um, that should cut off triumphalism at the knees. But yeah. to, yes, to recognize that to be thankful for what we have been given, but to recognize the grave dangers in trusting in any yeah. gift yeah. and certainly that of material prosperity. And, and let's have a global perspective on the, the growth of Christianity around the world. Yeah. You know, by the end yeah. of this decade, um, it seems like there'll be more Christians in China than there are in the United States. And, yeah. and look around sub-Saharan Africa, look at yeah. Afghanistan, look at yeah. Iran. Um, there is the flip side to the fact that mammon can be a curse that, yeah. that's uh, in places that, that don't have so much. Um, the gospel is going great guns. It is. Um, well, that is episode two of uh, Post-Christianity, question mark. Uh, this is a, a podcast of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, which is a ministry of the Gospel Coalition. We are a new podcast, and we would love uh, to get a rating and review. So if you could go to the podcatcher of choice uh, that you're listening to this on and... Uh, uh, share some thoughts on that that really helps us to get seen what also helps us to get sh uh, seen is uh, if you share this on social media either the YouTube video uh, if you're watching or the podcast we would love that and uh, we are going to do eight of these and uh, we've got some special guests really looking forward to it but uh, Andrew Wilson thanks for joining us thank you for having me